This morning, as Michael just read, we're in the next uh, passage. So we're just, uh, Clint's away on vacation, but we're just picking up with the next passage. He finished John 19 last week with Jesus' burial, and we're going to start in John chapter 20, verses, verse 1. And uh, the reason we're doing that is here at First Baptist, we really value teaching through books of the Bible. We think that there is something that you get when you do that, that you don't get if the preacher is just picking topics or picking verses that he wants to preach on. But instead, we are getting it in the order and with the proportion that God gave it to us. And so, and it also makes it so that we have to preach through things that are not easy or um, are maybe a little more difficult. And I think there's a lot of good that comes from wrestling with those things. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning and to look at what you say to us through your word. God, we pray that we would look to your word as what it really is, your word for us. God, we pray that we would submit to it. God, I ask that I would preach and teach your word in a way that glorifies you, that is honoring to you, that stays true to the text, and that is helpful to those who hear. God, we know that we cannot do this in and of ourselves, that we are in need of your spirit to come and to open our eyes to the truths of your word. And we pray that you would do that this morning. Amen. So before I get started, I want to ask you to participate with me in two ways. And this is two ways that I try to participate when I am sitting listening to a sermon. And uh, I think it's good if you always do this. Um, so the first way is that just as you think about it, as you're sitting there listening to preaching, teaching of God's Word, that you would pray and ask that God would give me, this morning me, but in general the preacher, words that honor him, that teach the text as God intended it to be taught, um, that we just wouldn't sit back and see this as um, something where you are passively watching or listening, but that you're actively involved in the preaching of God's Word. And the second way that I'd ask you to participate is that when we, when I say, it says this in a verse, I want you to look, does it actually say that in that verse? And then if I say that that verse means something, I want you to think about, does it actually mean that? Am I interpreting it correctly? And I think if we will do that, we will benefit a lot because we will hold God's word in higher authority than the preacher's word. And I think that God, that's the way that God intended it, that everything is to be judged by his word. So, you may have picked up on that we're going to be talking about the resurrection this morning. And I think Charlie did a good job uh, picking out songs and picking out 
uh, catechism questions for us to focus us on that and what the resurrection means. And I, I just want to continue kind of along the lines of those catechism questions by upping the ante for us. I know that hearing the thought that the sermon today is on the resurrection, it may sound like that's just going to be another Easter sermon. And um, I want us to see that the resurrection is not just a nice Bible story. It's not just an an add-on at the end that Jesus died for our sins and then God raised him just as a nice part. That's not what it is. It's not just a neat part of history. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So it is just as crucial to us being made right with God as Christ dying on the cross. And that sounds pretty provocative. That Paul, but I mean, that's word for word what Paul says. So the fact that Christ was raised, if he was not, we would still be in our sin. We wouldn't be meeting here this morning, at least not as a church. And so that raises, hopefully for us, the value of what the resurrection is. And Jesus' resurrection shows that he has victory over our greatest enemies, over sin, judgment, sorrow, death. In fact, Romans 8, Paul walks us through this, and he says that nothing's able to separate us from the love of Christ. And he's going through these different things. He says, not condemnation, not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Nothing can separate us. Christ has been raised from the dead. Nothing has power over him. The resurrection proved that Jesus' death on the cross was accepted by God as payment for our sin. That Jesus, all throughout his ministry, had been talking about how he was going to die for the sins of the world, and that all those who placed their faith in him would be forgiven. And a lot of people can say that, but Jesus' death proves that he was who he said he was. It proves that God accepted his payment, his death, as payment for our sin. It, the resurrection is confirmation that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he claimed to be. The resurrection gives us assurance of the mercy that Jesus spoke of. It assures us that Jesus, when he said that all who place their faith in him can be made right with God, will be made right with God, we can take assurance in that. But there's a flip side to it, and that is the resurrection also assures us that everything that Jesus said about the judgment for those who do not place their faith in Christ is also true. And so this morning, as we talk about the resurrection, I hope that you will look on it with eyes that see the resurrection as your hope and as that you would look to it believing that you can have life in his name. Now, anytime we come to a passage of Scripture, we should have three goals if we really want to understand what that passage is talking about. 
So the first is we should try to understand what it is that the author was thinking. What was on his mind? What's going on? Um, what, what's in his head? And so usually to do that, we've got to ask some really good questions and some prying questions. Let's see. I might just switch to this mic if I can do that. We're good? Okay. So ask what the author was thinking. The next is that we need to ask what is it that he was trying to communicate to the hearers, to the readers, to the people that he's writing this to. And then the third question that we want to ask is, why is it that he's trying to communicate those things to those people? And so usually to answer these questions and to really understand what the passage is saying, we've got to ask some really good questions. And we're going to do that this morning, but John has actually given us a little bit of help in that in verse 30, he tells us, or actually 31, he tells us, why he has written these things. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this is not just his reason for writing John chapter 20, but this is his reason for writing all of John. He desires First, that we would believe that Jesus is who He says He is. That we would believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God. And that after believing and seeing that, we would have life and experience life in His name. In fact, Charles Spurgeon commented on how John set up the book of John. And it's interesting to note, Charles Spurgeon notes this, that John leaves out some of the stories that some of the other Gospels include. And most of the stories that he leaves out are stories which he personally is involved in. And so what he's trying to do is he's so trying to put Jesus before us, so trying to present this case that in Jesus is the only way you're going to have life, that he takes out anything about him that would be distracting. He doesn't even name himself in his book. He refers to himself as the beloved disciple or um, other ways just of kind of referencing himself in third person because he, he so longs for us to see Jesus and for Jesus himself to be glorified. So again, our, our passage this morning has two main points. One, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that two, that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we're going to take each of those purposes for John writing this, and we're going to look at it and study it. The, uh, the first one, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We're going to break that up. I think John gives us four pieces of evidence that, that Jesus is who he says he is. And... John has been, throughout the whole book, he, he has been laying out this case for who Jesus is. And he's doing it through uh, seven big miracles. 
And then most people think that he sees the resurrection as the eighth, the final, the definitive miracle that this is my closing argument. Here is Jesus and he is who he says he is. And we can, the nice thing about this is that we can be confident that if people are willing to faithfully and honestly examine the facts, I think the only reasonable conclusion that they will come to is that Jesus is who he says he was. He was a person who actually lived in history, was actually the son of God. And so that gives us confidence. If, if you personally are doubting that Jesus is who he says he is, you don't have to shy away from that. I would encourage you, step into that. Look honestly into the, the facts. Look honestly into the resources that we have. If you have a friend or a family member who's struggling with the validity or the historical validity of Christianity or the reasonableness of it, I would encourage you and tell them to step out to look into it honestly. And if they really are willing to look at the facts honestly, I think that they will come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is. And John's going to lay out four pieces of evidence for us this morning. And, but if you want more resources on that, there's two books that I have found really helpful. One is by a guy named Lee Strobel, and it's called The Case for Christ. And then the other is a, it's a really small book. It's called More Than a Carpenter by a guy named Josh McDowell. And uh, in fact, Lee Strobel, he's an attorney that set out to disprove who Jesus was. And after looking at the facts, concluded, no, the only reasonable conclusion is that Jesus is who he says he is and that he had raised from the dead. So let's, let's look at the first piece of evidence. Our first piece of evidence that we have is in verses 1 and 2. It says that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the, stone to, from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, so our first piece of evidence is that we have a reliable witness and we'll qualify her as a reliable witness for two reasons. One is we see that she was not uh, looking for Jesus to resurrect. And that when she gets to the tomb and it's empty, her first thought is not, yay, Jesus has resurrected. Her first thought is someone has stolen the body. And so that gives us confidence that the disciples didn't fake a resurrection. They didn't arrange for all of this. That uh, she got there, she actually goes and tells the other disciples, someone has stolen the body. And then the second reason we can qualify her as a reliable witness is that if the disciples had faked the resurrection, they would not have used Mary as uh, their first witness because women at this time were not able to be used as reliable and legal witnesses in court. And so they would have used someone else to be the first one to have seen this. So that's our first piece of evidence that Mary Magdalene sees the empty tomb 
and is a reliable witness that it, it was empty. The second piece of evidence we have is corroborating witnesses. So she goes and she tells Simon Peter and John that the tomb is empty. They run, they look in, they also see that the tomb is empty. And it says that they see grave clothes just laying there neatly. And then in verse 8 it says, And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. And at first reading, it may seem like he believed that Jesus had resurrected, but I think that what it's saying is he believed Mary's story that the tomb was empty because in the very next verse it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So now we have corroborating witnesses. We have first Mary who said the tomb is empty. We've got two more guys who've been there say the tomb is empty. And then... In verse 11, we get to where Mary is back at the tomb, and um, she's there weeping, and I think that she's there weeping because she doesn't believe that Jesus has resurrected. And the angels say to her, angels appear to her, and they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And if you, if you piece the other gospels in with John's account of the resurrection one of the things that you'll see is that actually the first time John leaves this out but the first time that Mary's there before she runs to tell Peter and John angels appear to her and say why do you seek the living among the dead he is not here but has risen remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And so when she's first there, she gets told Jesus is risen, but she doesn't believe it because God has not opened her heart and her eyes to see that the resurrection has happened. She is still thinking that Jesus's body has been stolen. And we know this because when she gets back to the tomb and she's weeping and the angels ask her, why are you weeping? I think what they're saying is, We've already told you he's resurrected. Why, why are you sad? But she doesn't seem to, um, to put much evidence in that because even after them telling her that, she then says she sees a person that she thinks is a gardener. And she asks the gardener, the person she thinks is the gardener, where have you laid the body? So we see that she still doesn't think that Jesus is resurrected. But in this, we have our third piece of evidence, which is, that, which is the angels. So we see that God is involved here. We see evidence of the supernatural, of the spiritual at work. And then we get to our fourth piece of evidence because... The gardener isn't actually a gardener. The gardener is Jesus. And, and we know that, but she doesn't know that at the time. And she doesn't recognize him. And it's interesting to note that Mary's not the only one who doesn't recognize Jesus in his resurrected form. If you look in Luke, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they, off, they also uh, are having a long conversation with him and do not recognize them until he reveals himself to them. 
And so there's something about Jesus' resurrected body which in some way disguises himself or is not immediately evident to Mary that he is who he said he is. But then, as soon as he says her name, she recognizes him. And she does what we would all naturally do, what seems so natural, and that is she clings to him. And um, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but this is our fourth and final piece of evidence, and that is we have the actual resurrected Lord. So we've got our four pieces of evidence. We have an original witness, two corroborating witnesses. We have evidence of angels, spiritual um, God at work. And then we also have the actual resurrected Lord. So it's not just that they took those first three and came to the conclusion that Jesus resurrected, but they actually saw Jesus as resurrected. And so I think if we honestly look at that, there is no other reasonable conclusion but to say Jesus actually raised from the dead. And so if we do believe that, then we've accomplished what John's first purpose was, which is to that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so then we move on to well, what is the second purpose, which is that we may have life in his name. So we talked about how when Mary first recognizes Jesus, she clings to him. And it seems natural that she would do that. But Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And uh, so why, why would he say to her, do not cling to me? I don't think that he's saying, do not embrace me with love. But I think it's more like the, the best picture that I've thought of is when you have small children and the first time you take them to a nursery and they, they're hugging your leg because they don't want you to go and they're clinging in that way. And I think that that's the same way that Mary is clinging to Jesus. She's saying, I lost you. I have you back. I'm never going to let you go again. And Jesus is saying, no, our relationship is going to be different. It's actually going to be better than me being here physically with you. And he's been trying to teach that John 14 through 17, that it's better that he goes away and uh, th so that the Spirit can come and that we can have even more intimacy with God through his Spirit than we would have been able to have if he was here physically. So this is the first component of this life that we may have in his name, and that is intimacy with God through the Spirit. And so just to think a little bit, what does that intimacy with God through the Spirit look like? I think that it looks like valuing Him above all things. You know, I think that one of the reasons that God gives us human relationships, uh, whether it be deep friendships or uh, spouses or, or whatever type of relationship, there's some components to that that I think reflect the same way that we grow in those relationships is the same way that we grow in our relationship with God. And so if we want to get to know 
a friend or a spouse some, deeply, then one of the things we do is we share our thoughts, our desires, our feelings, that we let them in on who we are, what are the things that we value. And so I think that for us developing this intimacy with God, that's a part of it, is us just continually bringing our desires and our thoughts before God and asking Him that they would be honoring to Him, that, they would, that He would help us to think about things, to desire things that glorify Him and that are evidence of our new relationship with Him, evidence of our new life in Him. I think it's also to, to trust Him. Trust is key to any relationship. And so um, when God promises things, when God tells us things, that we would take Him at His word, that we would not hear those things and then just go on and do things our own way, but would, when He says that knowing Him and knowing His word is better than gold, do we really believe that? Are we able to be generous because we believe that promise? When he says that it's in him that we find freedom and joy, do we really believe that? Or do we still try to find joy in other ways that, that won't ever satisfy? So, the first component is intimacy with God through His Spirit. And then we see the second component in verse 17 where he says, For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. So, the second component we see is that it is shared with other believers. He tells her to go and to take this news of his resurrection to the other disciples. And in fact, we're not going to get to the story of Thomas today, but Thomas isn't there when she shares it and doesn't believe. And I think John is trying to teach us something about the value of being with other believers, that doubt starts to creep in when we are not regularly gathered together. And it can be the tendency when we have doubt to start to separate ourselves from being with God's people, but that's actually the worst thing that we can do to when we do have doubt, that what we need to be committed to is coming together with other believers and, and entering into that together. And what it is that she was to announce is, is the gospel. It is that Jesus is going to his God and our God. He's going to his Father and our Father. That through Christ's death and resurrection, we can now have a new transformed relationship with God, with the, a holy God who we have no right to claim as our God or our Father, and yet through Jesus, we can have the same Father that He has, that we can be adopted, that though we were by nature children of wrath, deserving eternal punishment, 
that the, through the Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be taken out of being children of wrath and become children of the living God who created us, who loves us, who desires our good. And this is the gospel that Jesus, Jesus doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't just justify us, but he also adopts us. He invites us into his family. So now let's look at the third component of this life that we may have in his name. We see in verse 19 that when Jesus enters the room, he says, peace be with you. And it's interesting that the last time they were probably together, gathered together in this room uh, was before the resurrection. And that since that time, Peter has denied knowing Jesus. Uh, the disciples are filled with doubt. And Jesus doesn't enter in and shame them or guilt them. But he enters in and he says, peace be with you. And this is illustrating to us how we are to relate to God, that God is coming with grace, that if we will repent and turn to him, we can have peace with this God, that our guilt, our shame will not be held against us, but that we will be able to have peace with God. And then the fourth component of this life that we can have in his name, we see in verse 21, where he says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So this life is a life of being sent, of not just taking and having Jesus for ourselves, but a life where we are proclaiming the good news that we can be made right with a holy God, the good news that we can have peace with God, the good news that Jesus has made a way for us to have God as our Father and for us to be adopted as children. And so we are to proclaim these things to our spheres of influence, to your neighbors, your family, uh, co-workers, all that God has put us in relationship with. So to summarize, the four components of this life that we may have in his name are intimacy with God, a life that is shared with other believers, peace with God, and a life that is lived, sent out to proclaim the gospel. So in application, I want to ask two things. The first is, can you agree with R.A. Torrey, who writes this about the resurrection? I look at the cross of Christ, and I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I know I look at the open tomb and the risen and ascended Lord, and I know that the atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins have been. So can you look does, at the resurrection? And is, is that what the resurrection means for you? That you look at the resurrection and you have assurance that there is no longer sin on you. And if, if that's not the case, then I want to implore you with the words 
of 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. I want to implore you, look at the facts. Examine who Christ is. He is who he says he is. And in him we can have life in his name. And for those of us who do look at the resurrection and do see that it guarantees our resurrection, that it guarantees that we have been made right with God, there can be a tendency to believe that, but then to live as though it's not true. In Ephesians 1.17 to 20, it says that the same power that was at work in raising Jesus from the dead is at work in all those who believe. So if this morning you're at a place where it seems like there's sin in your life that you're just going to have to live with for the rest of your life, that there's, there's no way to overcome it. I want to encourage you that the resurrection guarantees us a new life. It guarantees us power through His Spirit being at work in us, and that if we will walk in that Spirit, trusting God, we will grow and see victory in areas that we never thought were possible. So let me pray for us. God, we thank you for what the resurrection means. We thank you that you have accepted Christ's payment on the cross for us. We thank you that it means that Jesus is who he says he is. We thank you for the hope that you give us through it. And God, we pray that we would live lives that are lived in intimate communion with you, that we would live lives that are in the midst of other believers, and that we would live lives that are sent out to proclaim this good news to others. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.